Uh, our Old Testament reading doesn't sound as if it's very reconciling. It is from the fourth chapter of Genesis. It's two small verses there, which as you're reading the lineage of the very first humans uh, is easy to skip over. Uh, but I would invite you this morning to pause and listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. And our New Testament reading is from the Gospel according to Matthew. It's Jesus addressing his disciples in response to a question... And again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven times. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant had gone out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. First, let me say that I am very happy to be this week back with you 
in worship. I missed being in the midst of this special fellowship of believers. I missed seeing and hearing you and speaking a word that I had been given for you and to those who join us via the modern miracle of the internet. But it was also good to have a Sunday off. It was good for me. It was good for you too. Uh, Tom and David did an outstanding job, I'm told. And as I had all the confidence in the world, they would. It gave me a little extra time to be with Rhonda as she recovers from her surgery. And it also has given me a little time to catch my preaching breath, so to speak, to prepare for this week. And that's good because, uh, as it happens, uh, this week seems to present, at least for me, it seems to present a rather difficult lesson. Uh, One not just to receive, but one to faithfully pass along. And it comes at a particularly, I think, challenging time for us to hear it. As we have just celebrated the 19th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, we're in the midst of a time of increasing divisiveness in our collective national life, and we are, in case you've forgotten, in the closing eight weeks of an election cycle on the local, state, and federal level. But God seems to have a knack, doesn't he, for knowing what we need to hear and when. These verses from the first gospel that we just heard are one of what I would call Scripture's hard teachings. One that I imagine those who heard Jesus speak them also found to be equally confounding. As it hits home hard, I would guess, for most all of us, regardless of time or place. But as I had promised a few weeks ago, this season in the life of old Rehoboth is wondering which we'll be getting back to basics, to reviewing and reinforcing some of the core tenets of the faith. And as the gospel lectionary text for this morning speaks of forgiveness and reconciliation, it fits right in with this theme of addressing Christianity's historic fundamental beliefs. Here in the 18th chapter of Matthew, our reading from this morning comes right on the heels of Jesus' teaching his followers about the nature and the importance of reconciliation and the role which prayer plays in that process. And reconciliation is bedrock in the covenant relationship which God has established between himself and his creation as well as between his creatures. But that doesn't mean that it's an easy subject either to ponder or to live out. Profitable, absolutely, but not necessarily easy. There's a lot of things in Scripture that are a bit hard to swallow, but they have been given to us for a purpose. And what makes this particular series of verses particularly uneasy, I think, has a lot to do with our innate bias against forgiveness. After all, doesn't it feel so much better 
to seek revenge or even to hold a grudge. I've known people, and you may have as well, who spent much of their lives motivated by this kind of misery. They felt as if since once upon a time, life hadn't given them a fair shake. Well, that's the way it's bound to always be. So why should we seek pleasure in anything other than unhappiness? Other folks spend their days scheming of ways that they're going to get even, even with either a particular person or, or a particular group, or even with everyone who isn't them, on account of feeling that they have somehow been wronged in this life. And most of us, at one time or another, have felt this urge, this urge to return someone's unkindness with, with bigger and better unkindness in a sort of arms race. After all, he who laughs loudest laughs last, right? Well, yes, such is the wisdom of this world. But Jesus is teaching the people of God about the wisdom and the way that comes not from this world, but from beyond from the one who has made this world and the one who is reconciling this world to himself through this very Jesus. As was often his habit, he does so through the use of a parable. Once upon a time, Jesus begins, there was this king. And when Jesus is teaching in parables, he often includes within them the figure of a king. And you can pretty well bank on the fact that that's God. Well, this king had a servant, a slave, brought before him who owed him what amounted to a king's ransom. Uh, there was no way that this fellow was going to repay, no matter how much time he had to do it, the debt that was owed. Now, the author of the gospel doesn't say that Jesus explained how it was that any subject of the king's could go so deep into debt of the king, but he just tells us that's the way it was. And there was no way he was going to pay it back. The debt was far greater than the resources he had or he would ever have to pay it back. And so it is with us, right? Our debt to God is far far greater than our resources to pay it. If we were to audit the heavenly books, the ledger would show that the sum under the heading of what we owe God for, for all that he has done for us, it would include line items such as creating light from darkness, creating the heavens and the earth, creating the waters and the land, creating the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, and us. It would include providing for us food 
and drink, shelter from the elements, health of mind and body, and companionship. And it would include the covenant which the Almighty has made with our ancestors in the faith, the covenant which has continued on down through to you and to me. That's the covenant which the one who is telling this very parable has come to recertify in a most generous, benevolent, and sacrificial way. On our side of the ledger, well, we'll find not so much has been entered. Even on humanity's very best days, what could possibly compare to what God has done for us? So let us then turn our attention to what Jesus says next. In the parable, after the man is forgiven his debt, we are introduced to a second servant of the king. He also has a debt problem, but with this man, the story is a little different, for he owes a relative pittance. And he owes it not to the king, but he owes it to a fellow servant. In fact, he owes it to the one who had just been forgiven. Now, you might think that someone who had just been forgiven such an enormous debt as this man would have been feeling relief and joy and overall being sort of a sense of footloose and fancy freeness. But he puts that assumption to rest by the ruthless manner in which he is depicted in dealing with his fellow servant. Now, if Jesus is holding up this man for his disciples and for us, this man who is acting quite contrary to the way he is advocating people act, well, he, it's reinforcing just what he had been teaching in response to the question that had been asked of him at the outset of this exchange by Peter. How much, O Lord, how much forgiveness is enough? This much or that much or this much? How much is enough? And the long and the short of it is, I believe, there is no limit. The numbers that are used in this parable are are not to be understood as precise figures. Some scholars believe that 70 times 7 is a trope using a number that represents completeness and also the antithesis of the avenging nature of man as was depicted in the boastfully vengeful Lamech in our reading that we heard from the Old Testament this morning. These two verses in Genesis 4 are sometimes referred to as the song of the sword. But the song of forgiveness that comes from God comes most sweetly to our ears in the key of Jesus. And the lyrics of this song, they tell Peter and they tell the rest of us who hear it that there is no limit to the length or the depth or the width, or the height of forgiveness. And the reason there is no limits is because the king, God, has put no limit on it. 
If God is willing and able to forgive mankind for all of our collective disobedience, generations and generations of covenantal neglect and amnesia, for the trivializing, for the mocking, for the abusing and the murdering of his beloved, only begotten son. We have ample evidence to show that our king is far more lenient with us than we could ever expect or hope for. The degree of this forgiveness is a sign of the depth of that love that he has for us. Though he is well aware We do not have the capacity to love as deeply as that, but within the limits of our human abilities, we are nonetheless given the capability to emulate this divine forgiveness, even if it amounts only to a fraction of the magnitude which God has shown to us. Before I continue, Let me pause here to make an important point concerning forgiveness that could easily get lost in the conversation about forgiving of debts. And that is not only is forgiveness of the other a vital part of the Christian life, so too, my brothers and sisters in Christ, so is forgiveness of self. And this can often be an even more difficult calling for us to fulfill. But if God has found in his divine heart to forgive us, then who do we think we are to not offer that forgiveness to ourselves? So as we consider the merits of forgiving others in the manner that we have been forgiven, We may also remember that God sent his son to free us for forgiveness without partiality, without discrimination, without exclusion, including ourselves. In the conclusion of his parable, Jesus warns his hearers that they are to give as freely as they have received. And then he says, or else. The king who had forgiven his servant this great debt is very upset with the way this fellow then lives out the gratitude that ought to have flowed from this great act of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness that he was blessed to receive. Hearing the report of the way that He's treated his fellow slave. His actions are akin to those described by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the first phrase of his definition of cheap grace. Cheap grace, he wrote, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. This doesn't compute with the divine math and a just God. It seems He is not pleased with such acts. So where does that leave us? Well, I think it leaves us with free will. We can choose to be more forgiving after the manner of the Almighty, 
Or we can choose to be less forgiving after the manner of the world. But our choices have consequences. And we are informed that it's in our best interest. And, in fact, it's in the best interest of the whole world. Should we choose the more difficult, the more sacrificial path? That which is exemplified by the way of Jesus. Bonhoeffer ultimately went to his death in a Nazi prison camp for his refusal to live a life of cheap grace. While it may not be so dramatic for us, the act of forgiveness does require a degree of dying, of dying to self and living as a new creation, one whose nature is not set on self but on God and one whose life is expressed in service to God's good creation. Our brothers and our sisters, our fellow children of God. In the days, in the weeks, in the months, and the years to come, when we hear and when we reflect upon Peter's question about what constitutes enough forgiveness, may we be reminded of what has already been done for us, what has already been given to us. And for that, we can truly say, thanks be to God and amen.